You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This is the Christian Humanist Podcast, a weekly discussion of theology, philosophy, literature, art, and other things that human beings do well. And now your hosts, David Grubbs, Nathan Gilmore, and Michael Fox. So the same Thanks for downloading another episode of the Christian Humanist Podcast. My name is Nathan Gilmore, and I am a soon-to-be full professor of English at Emmanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia. I'm joined online by Dr. Michael Farmer, a for-the-moment assistant professor of English at Crown College in St. Bonifacius, Minnesota. And I am slurring my speech already, Michael. Is that a bad sign? Uh, How much have you been drinking? Uh, Mainly caffeinated beverages, but a fair bit. Uh, also online, and I assume not drinking as much caffeine as I have been, although I could be wrong about that, is Dr. David Grubbs, an assistant professor of English at Houston Baptist University. David, how are things? Uh, I am insufficiently caffeinated, as you say. Very good, very good. Uh, lots going on on the network this week. City of Man had an episode on offensiveness. Uh, I only made it about 10 minutes in, and I turned it off. I was offended. Uh, I I actually haven't listened to it yet. I plan to. Uh, The Christian feminists are talking about Marie Kondo, speaking of offensive. Uh, There's going to be a Profiles episode with Kathy Barbini. Did either of you two record that one? No. No, that's not not me. So all three of us are going to be surprised listeners, just as you are, uh, when the Kathy Barbini episode drops. That reminds me... Listeners, that in your past, my future, I should uh, email Brit Stack and find out who recorded that. We've also got a an episode of Before They Were Live. Michael, tell us about it. Well, we watched The Aristocats. Which means that I had to watch two terrible movies this week. <laughs> and yet, here you well, are, alive to tell us about it. Barely. So listeners, if that doesn't make you want to listen to uh, Before They Were Live, I just don't know what well, will. I, I will say this. The amount of research Altman Schofer did for that episode is staggering. He quotes uh, Pope Gregory the Ninth at one point. Holy crap. Wow. Yeah. yeah, so definitely tune into it to hear Josh uh, tell you about the history of cat litter and Gregory the Ninth, And he quotes from Out of the Silent Planet. Like he is, uh, he's out of control of that episode. Man, that is the, fascinating. The the under the underscore alt bringing the erudition. And finally, we have a uh, sectarian review podcast on the Wicker Man. Uh, so uh, you know, once again, listeners, it is a six episode week. Uh, so lots of good stuff going on here on the network. Uh, be sure to uh, subscribe to all of those great shows and have a listen. They are all good stuff. Well, as Michael. Uh, already said, we are recording this week on the 20th anniversary of the release of The Matrix. Uh, it's a movie that uh, all three of us have seen, all three of us have memories of, and all three of us have definite critiques of, perhaps none of us more than Michael, but we'll get to that. Well, in fact, Michael, I mean, let's start out with that uh, 
personal experience because this is an, a movie that really hasn't aged well over 20 years, but it is a pop cultural phenomenon and I'm interested in those kinds of things. So let's take it around the horn. Michael, when and where did you first see this one and how did your circles receive it? And once you've told your story, pass it along to David. Well, we, I saw it in high school and somebody I knew must have owned the VHS because I remember I watched it in my parents' living room. Um, and, you know, people were talking about it. People were talking about it as a cool movie, as a violent movie. Uh, nobody really spoiled it for me. So when I saw the movie for the first time, I was blown away by the plot twist that happens about 30 minutes in, which I assume we can talk about, right? Because who doesn't know the plot yeah, twist? Yeah, we're going to have to. We're going to have to. <laughs> so I, I uh, yeah, I, I, I borrowed that VHS from someone and watched it. And I am certain that I loved it and thought it was super deep. And I heard many other people over the next couple of years, in my first two years of college, talk about how deep it was as well. And then uh, so at some point, we all began to turn on it. Uh, and now here we are. David, how about you? I saw it in college. Um, I saw it in the theater. It's one of the few movies that uh, I, I, I do remember seeing in the theater when it first came out. Um. And we we were, you know, all, me and all the other college guys that 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 watched it. We were we were also blown away. Um, I mean, there, there's there's a lot of stuff in this that that we had not seen uh, in terms of cinematography, in terms of uh, action, um, action choreography. Um, the the aforementioned plot twist uh, was cool. Uh, this was also a period of time in which uh, video games and the possibilities of virtual reality and all that kind of stuff were um, certainly they'd, they'd been in science fiction and and been kind of building, but uh, uh, were much much more mainstreamed. Um, you know, this this was the era when you know me and a bunch of buddies uh, installed. Um, uh, Oh, and, and installed one of those uh, uh, Star Wars, uh, one of the first Star Wars games that had a multiplayer battle mode. We installed it on the computers in, in our little Bible college library and pretended to be studiously writing papers while actually having death matches over in a corner. Um, nice. So, so yeah, this is, you know, this, this was very much um, a, a, a milestone. Um, and I bought the VHS, and I probably loaned it to people, and then the sequels came out, and I was very sad. Um, I, I did. See I think the, a lot of us were. I did see the first sequel in the movie theater, and I remember feeling like it was absolutely interminable, except for the car chase scene, which I know is half the movie. And I remember <laughs> being very impressed by it. I have not returned to it, and I never did see the third one. Well, I watched the other two in the theater. The second one, I was like, eh. and then I watched the third one. And I was like, no, never mind. I was, I was very sad, and I have not followed any anything Matrixy since. The did any of y'all ever see the the uh, the, the animated anthology? I did. The I Anna watched Matrix. the Animatrix. It is much, much better than the sequels. Really? Uh, I'd, I'd say it is as interesting as the original. Okay. Talk about Seen. damning with faint praise. <laughs> 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 well, 
Well, I, I you know, I, I, I guess maybe it's good that they got more, more creative imaginations to, to venture forth into, into that fictional world. Well, it's a world that kind of lends itself to brief thought experiments more than it lends itself to attempts at extended narrative. So I, it makes sense that the animated shorts do better than sequel movies. Alrighty. I was, when, you, I was, when I was thinking about all of this, I thought about um, the Avatar. Well, I guess it's just a movie right now. They're making four sequels to Avatar, which they all greenlit before they realized nobody actually liked the movie. That they just oh, uh, are they really? Oh yeah, uh, and they, well, they redid a whole section of the Animal Kingdom at Disney World too. I, oh, I know, I've been on those rides. Yeah, so so they're doing all these sequels, despite the fact that nobody really liked the movie. It was a big hit, and everybody went to see it because it was to, so technologically advanced. But when's the last time you heard anybody talk about how much they love Avatar? Right, right. Never. Um, yeah. So uh, I, I saw this also in 1999 in the theater. Uh, it was the last semester of my senior year in college, and so uh, all of the philosophy majors went together to see it after, you know, the chatter had started up about it, and we were all just extraordinarily excited that, you know, there was a an action movie about Plato's Cave. Uh, you know, that, <laughs> that, that, that was basically enough for us. Uh, and then, after uh, my senior year in college, I went to seminary, so I heard about this movie incessantly for the next three years. Uh, oh, the term papers about the Matrix. Oh, the term papers about the Matrix. Did you ever think about um, how it kind of describes the life we all live in the world of consumer capitalism, Nathan? It's like we need to make, wake up, man. But, uh, <laughs> so yeah, for several years, uh, I lived in a Matrix world. And then, like Michael said, I mean, uh, I can't even remember if it was a gradual turn or whether it was a sudden turn. But the Matrix became a source of cliches in a hurry. So, I mean, you know, I, I do remember when Shrek started doing hand-to-hand combat with bullet time. Uh, by that point, you know, that was a joke that made sense and got laughs. So, I mean, uh, sometime between the Matrix and Shrek, uh, Matrix became a joke that you could joke about in Shrek. That's, uh, <laughs> that's kind of how I, I draw out that timeline. Uh, so David, you know that I like to talk about opening sequences when we take on movies. So what's worth noting from the trumpet blasts over the Warner Brothers logo all the way up to the smashed up phone booth? What about this movie gets revealed and obscured and otherwise presented in those opening minutes? Well, we do have the, uh, the, the opening logo. Um, and even, even before the first footage of the film proper begins, um, we're already we're already in Matrix Vision, which is that kind of desaturated, tone down the red, blast the greens, um, that 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 color shift filter that is basically through. It basically tells you you're in the Matrix. Um, that that begins even even at this point. Or in any action movie released between 1999 and 2005. <laughs> yeah you know as, as as much as we might you know whatever we might say in critiquing this film it's uh, it's it's undeniable that it that it introduced 
directors to a, a kind of language of filmmaking. I don't think they quite yet figured out which parts of that language were the effective ones. Um, but yeah, so you see a lot of, you know, green filter, black trench coated bullet time things for a while there. Um, but yeah, you're, you're kind of in the matrix even before the first, even before the first shot. Um, there's also early on, um, you hear voices, uh, voices are talking, uh, you can't quite understand what are they talking about, um, the, the, those, those now familiar sound, uh, well, familiar, familiar to, to our generation, but not necessarily familiar probably to our students and those younger, um, but the sounds of dial up, <laughs> um, which meant the internet and access to the internet. Uh, and then that opening scene of SWAT teams, um, coming into this deserted building surrounding this woman at, uh, uh, who is sitting in front of a phone and there, and, and then comes that first, that first bullet time moment as she leaps into the air and then hovers as the, uh, as the camera circles around her. And then she kicks the pudgy guy and across the room, um, more death, more mayhem. Um, and so it seems as if it's a superhero story, you know, about, about super powered people, you know, romping around what looks like our world, you know, with abilities that other people don't have, um, leaping through the air, uh, and all the rest of it. Uh, and see, that's interesting, David, that you think of it as a superhero story. The very first time that I saw it, because I didn't know what I was going into, uh, I guess because I had been influenced by the first two Terminator movies, I thought that this was like this super assassin cyborg that was going to be the killer through the whole film. Ah, that's interesting. I don't know how many people in 99 would have thought superhero movies, because they're, they're really, other than the Tim Burton Batman movies, which were had long since descended into the Joel Schumacher Batman movies. There really weren't any superhero movies until a couple of years after this. So, Right, right. But I, but it's interesting, David, because I mean, I, I, I distinctly remember uh, believing the character that you find out later is Agent Smith when he says that this is a terrorist, this is a, you know, basically killing machine. So I assumed, I mean, until fairly deep into it, that this was, you know, the the deadly predator figure in the movie. Well, you, you say that, but blade came out the year before. And I I had seen blade in the theater. So I was thinking this is, this is another kind of gothic. I, I thought of, I thought of blade when I watched the matrix for the first time. Okay, that's interesting. So I, yeah, I was that makes in the, sense. I was in this sense. kind of gothic, you know, both gothic in terms of gothic horror, like vampires, but also goth as in like everybody's wearing black. Um, I th- I was thinking goth superhero. Um, now I didn't I didn't play Shadow Run. 
<laughs> in the eighties and nineties, and I didn't read Philip K. Dick, and I also didn't see the Terminator movies until after this. Um, okay, and I I didn't see Blade till after this, so I, the the pieces are coming together. Yeah, so so yeah, so I was I was blown away by that, and then um, the the race to the phone booth. Uh, and then the, the, the truck, the truck is racing, racing toward, racing towards the phone. Who she gets into it. She answers the phone truck slams into it, backs up and she's gone. And at this point I'm like, what is going on? But I was hooked because it had tropes of, of movies that I was already visual tropes of movies that I was already interested in. Um, but it was not yet giving away, like, are these super fast vampires? Are they superheroes? Are they, you know, I, I, I didn't yet have cyborgs in my head. The one thing that I didn't doubt was the thing that ends up becoming the twist. And I think that's one of the reasons why it's stuck with so many people, because we're trying to figure out that, you know, the twist that I was looking for is what makes kick the kick the guy across the room lady who can jump super far and all the rest of it. What makes her special was what I was trying to figure out. What I never questioned was the world that I was in. Yeah, I think they do a pretty good job uh, with the twist. I I think if you don't know what's coming, it's going to be pretty difficult for you to guess what's coming. Uh, I, I don't know that the movie holds up once you know what the twist is. But definitely, I remember being just blown away by that twist. Well, the, I mean, remember this is also around the time when M. Night Shyamalan still has movies with twists that work. Right. Well, and, and, but, it, but... And, and it hasn't just been reduced to the, to the, to the twist. But um, one thing that uh, The Sixth Sense does well, that The Matrix doesn't, is that The Sixth Sense... It's still a good movie, even once you know the twist, because I never saw that movie without already knowing the twist. And not only was I still interested in that movie, I was still in suspense, even though I knew what was coming. So I, I would say that movie does a much better job of maintaining itself once the, uh, once the wrapping paper of the twist has been removed. Yeah. Yeah. One more thing that, that gets revealed, obscured, and otherwise presented in that opening scene is Carrie Ann Moss's butt. Uh, <laughs> I don't know how many cows had to die to make her variety of leather outfits, but the uh, the filmmakers are certainly interested in demonstrating. That, well, that those know, deaths I, were not in vain? <laughs> uh, you know, Cypher also had to have a steak, so that's I mean, the, there were a lot of cows killed for this movie. Oh man, there's some terrible leather in this movie. Her outfits are just awful. And I, I remember it looking kind of silly, even in 1999. Maybe you guys have a different memory of that. Well, I, I played Shadowrun all through high school, so I, it, it, this was my world. I also... not, not as far as what I wore from day to day, listeners, but <laughs> as far as a, a genre, it made sense to me. Well, if you'd seen Blade the year before, and you also remember being stoked out of your mind as a, well, middle schooler in my case, um, when I discovered the first Highlander movie and then the series on USA. So the idea of kind of BA action heroes among us walking around in trench coats was sort of 
was sort of the idiom of my imagination for a, a, a goodly chunk of my late adolescence. Like, like trench coats were of the essence. <laughs> so, you know, trench coats in the Matrix, I'm like, well, yes, of course they wear trench coats. I'm kind it's... of surprised. And I mean, I, I don't remember. So maybe if I went back in time, I would find this. But this came out, what, the year after Columbine? No, it was it came out about a month before Columbine. Okay, so the the whole trench coat. I mean, the the scene where he wears the trench coat, walks into the office building, and opens fire is very uncomfortable. That was the paradigm for Columbine. I'm pretty sure. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I had the timeline gone the other way, this would have been an utterly inappropriate movie. But this movie hit theaters in March and Columbine happened in late April, as I remember. April 20th. There you go. Yeah. I was in high school. I'll never forget that. Like that was in some ways a bigger event for my emotional life than 9-11. Yeah, that makes some sense. That makes some sense. Well, Michael, I'm going to tee you up here. So get ready. Folks make much for good or ill of this film's philosophical and religious aspirations. Let's call them that. So as you see things, Michael, does this film do anything interesting with references to Jesus, Plato's cave, and Oracle, the Trinity, the Judas storyline, There Is No Spoon, Morpheus, Nebuchadnezzar, What Makes Us Truly Human, Baudrillard, or were we philosophy majors just starved for some mimesis back in 1999? You were starved for some mimesis. Uh, this, I do not think it does interesting things with really any of those things, but why don't we go through them piece by piece and talk about the, the kind of surface level use this movie makes of all of them uh obviously neo is a christ figure he's called the one neo means new he dies and comes back to life with new powers uh what the movie does with that i don't know it it, it seems less to be making a statement than it is just playing on your the associations that already exist in, in the mind and of the, the uh, floppy disk and the floppy disk addict at the beginning calls him my own personal Jesus Christ. That's right. That's right. After he opens apartment zero one. Oh, good Lord. Uh, the Plato's cave is probably the most thought out uh, philosophical piece of the movie. Uh, our, our listeners, I'm sure, know what Plato's cave is. But just in case they don't, it's a thought experiment wherein... People are kind of chained up at the bottom of a cave. They've never seen the sunlight. All they see is, um, all they see is shadows on the wall, and they think that the shadows are real life. And then one day, one of them gets out somehow, sees the sun, comes back uh, with the new knowledge of what's really real, man. And the rest of them try to kill him. It's a, it's an allegory for Socrates, among other things. And so you you get that pretty clearly here. The reality that we think we know is not really reality it's it's uh it's a simulation and when morpheus tries to spread the gospel of the actual reality he is well he is almost killed by one of the people whom he thought he had converted so i I mean in that sense maybe the thing the matrix was best for was between 2005 and 2010 anytime you needed to explain plato's cave you could say just like the matrix I don't know that people have seen the movie anymore. I've stopped using it in my intro to philosophy class because the students largely haven't seen it. And so the reference doesn't make sense. So even there, I think it, it's it's not really saying anything interesting. It's not an interesting commentary on Plato's Cave, but it's a pretty good illustration of Plato's Cave for people who don't already know that allegory. Along with it, you have um, 
the Cartesian thought experiment, too, at the beginning of the Meditations on First Philosophy, where he decides that he's going to assume that everything he sees and encounters with his senses is just the work of a malicious demon trying to trick him. And, I mean, obviously, that's, yeah. what, that's what you've got with the Matrix. They're, they're not demons, exactly, but it's a malicious robot trying to trick you. Uh, why she is called Trinity is completely beyond me, except to have some more religious imagery in the movie. Do either of you have any insight on that? No, that is an entirely gratuitous name, I'm almost certain. Yeah. You have the Judas storyline with Cypher betraying not Neo, but Morpheus, and, and turning him into the, uh, to the, to the robots. What are they, the Matrix, I guess you would just call it. Um, and like Judas, it, the agents, like Judas, it doesn't end well for him. Uh, but again, I don't know that that sheds a whole lot, lot of light on the Jesus story. Uh, it is interesting that he doesn't betray Neo, he betrays Morpheus. Right, right. But, I mean, the movie never claimed to be a Christ allegory or anything like that. Uh, there is no spoon. Is is just the notion that uh, the reality that appears real to us is not real, and so we can manipulate it at will. There's something kind of... Uh, technologically transhuman about that wouldn't you say that that the the materials of the world are just there for us to bend even though it has that eastern philosophical flavor as opposed to the techno flavor well it's only because the little white buddha boy says it. right right uh morpheus is the god of sleep is that correct the greek god of sleep yeah which is ironic because he's he waking wants to everybody wake you up, up. deep man Oh, deep, man. Uh, the ship being the Nebuchadnezzar is another one that I think probably just sounded good. Well, and also Nebuchadnezzar famously has a dream in Daniel. Oh, that's true. They make that reference in the, the first sequel. That's true. Uh, the what makes this truly human bit was the closest thing this movie has to an actual philosophy, and it really made me angry. <laughs> so the, the idea is that, uh, what Mouse, is that the kid's name? The, 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 yep. the youngest member of the Nebuchadnezzar crew. Um, su suggest that Neo should engage in some weirdo uh, semi-human <laughs> pornography that he invented. And he said that what makes us truly human is uh, following our urges, which is demonstrably false since all animals have sexual desire and also follow them. And, and within the film, Switch immediately says the, the digital pimp hard at work. Right. But I mean, it, 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 ultimately, I think that might actually be this movie's guiding philosophy is just follow your impulses. I, I don't know. I don't I don't see a whole lot beyond that. Uh, Baudrillard is a one off reference, right? So he keeps is it a hard drive? He keeps some sort of computer hacking equipment and a hollowed yeah, it's, out it's, um, a hollowed out copy of simula uh, simulacrum and simulacra or whatever it's called. Yeah, simulation and simulacra. Yeah. yeah. And, and that's very much a trope from the cyberpunk genre. It's the idea that, uh, you know, software that stimulate that uh, simulates, pardon me, uh, neural impulses can be a, a kind of addictive drug. All of this seems like just set dressing to me. I don't, I don't think it has anything interesting to say about any of it beyond just evoking it. Am I, am I being unfair? No, I think you're right. And, and I mean, you know, the, the one that you skipped over, the Oracle, even that one, uh, you know, famously, you know, every, like I said, seminarian between 1999 and 2002 uh, just thought he was terribly clever because he said, oh, you, you see, he had to say I'm not the one, but she said, 
you'll discover in another life. And then he dies and comes back and he is the one. <sighs> but yeah, I mean, it, it is the uh, simulation of depth, right? Uh, and, you know, a few years ago, listeners, if you were listening back then, uh, we talked about the film Pulp Fiction with Danny Anderson uh, as a guest host on the show. And I mean... Uh, it's funny that that one was at the end of my high school years. This one was at the end of my college years. Both of them are very much uh, trying to appear deep, uh, but then when you actually dig with any kind of shovel, you don't find much depth. But Pulp Fiction's a good movie, and this is not. Like Pulp Fiction holds up. It's still fun to watch. It It is technically experimental. This movie is technologically experimental in terms of what it does with CGI, but it's not technically experimental. It's a fairly, uh, in terms of the construction of the movie, it's pretty straightforward. David, anything else to say about this uh, this uh, cornucopia of philosophical and religious imagery? <laughs> uh, just that uh, I was noticing Mouse this time around, uh, in this, in the same way uh, that you were, Michael. Though it was interesting to sort, sort of, I, I think maybe in some sense you're supposed to say, yes, it's humans' imperfections that make us, or or our 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 urges that are that are you know beyond the rational that make us you know authentically human. Um, but those are still interior things, and you couldn't really argue against. If if that if if you were taking Mouse's position, you really couldn't argue against Cipher's position later on that he wants to be put back into the Matrix because he simply craves the pleasant sensations that he'd had before, and and it doesn't really matter to him whether or not they correspond to anything that's you know materially present. You know he's 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 going with his desires too. They're just going to be satisfied by, you know, tweaking his neurons instead of, uh, instead of in some corporeal existence. Is is there um, an argument to be made that the movie critiques that argument, other than that Neo does not actually go to the digital prostitute? Um, um, I would say that you know the fact that the characters that exhibit nobility as opposed to Cipher. Uh, remain in the Matrix and strive for something like liberty rather than going back in, I think that's at least an implicit argument against it. I mean, they continue this existence uh, with, you know, bad food and hard bunks and so on and so forth uh, in the name of something that transcends the woman in red. It's one of the things that I found least satisfying about arriving at Zion in the second movie. And find and Zion basically being just one big cave rave. Yeah, I remember uh, that now that you said that. And I was like, really, this is what it's all for? Because there's a kind of, I mean, there's a kind of asceticism about life in the Nebuchadnezzar. You know that they've, you know that they're embracing this life of, you know, kind of continued danger and day-to-day doldrum and hardship. Um for the sake of the mission and then when you get back to zion zion is you know you know i don't know burning man or something and yeah that's about right i was like really this is this is what we're gonna fight for 
They should have had a hologram of Plato show up and say, "You know nothing of my work." <laughs> well, it, it's it's like you get to the second in the second one, you find out that they really are fighting for their right to party. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's great! I, I think all of that's this great. just goes to demonstrate how shallow the thought in this movie is. It, it is a, it is a movie that has the simulacra of uh, of thought. But really, it's just a bunch of flashy images and terrible dialogue. Right, right. And very, very bad fight choreography. Now, I don't know. I don't. I don't know that I would necessarily say that yet because Yuan Wuping is a legend. You know, I, I've never seen an action movie where the fight scenes were as boring as this one. And oh, and see, I, I kind of like the fight choreography. I wasn't bored when I first... I remember being bored when I first saw it. I've definitely seen better since. But and, and, you know, I know that it's playing on kung fu movies, and maybe my lack of experience with those is what is my problem here, but I, I just did not think they... I thought the fight choreography was very weird-looking. And... So, so out of curiosity, Michael, I mean, what, uh, what are a couple of movies where you like the fight choreography so I can get a get a, a frame of reference i don't know i usually only notice it if it's bad i i, I don't also don't like the. i, <laughs> okay. I also don't like the more recent trend where you can't even see what's going on because it's moving no <laughs> the shaky cam yeah the worst i don't know but i i thought they all looked kind of silly and and i mean nobody worse than reeves reeve reeves oh now i don't know <laughs> I, nobody <laughs> worse than Re- Keanu. reeves reeves pretty sure reeves um but, I mean, you know, it, it, de- it definitely to... is stylized, and if you aren't, if you aren't digging on the, if you aren't digging on that that those stylistic echoes, um, then then I could see like it, it, it it's definitely artificial. I'll definitely grant you that, but it's an it's 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 an art it's it's an artificial style that's attempting to kind of do do homage to something that was also already artificial um the wuxia film which you know if you want to hear um the 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 classic exposition of that in the christian humanist radio network uh go listen to the christian feminists episode on uh 14 amazons in which you know the inimitable larry norris walks you through all the history of wuxia it's wonderful but that that's basically what what uh, is happening in this in this film is an homage to that. And Yuan Weiping, uh, who does the fight choreography, is one of the one of the living masters in that tradition. Well, I'll stand down then, David. Yeah, but you know, I I I can definitely see why it would feel it feels stilted, but it feels I think it feels stilted in the way that you know someone who grows up watching kind of relatively you know the, the the desire for at least some kind of realism in drama going to watch opera you know it, it's it's so over the top stylized um or dragon ball z for that matter it has more to do with dragon ball z than it does with you know uh the ufc or whatever right right well, David, I want to turn to the bad guys in this film because that is an element of the film that I think bears some interest. So 
what's the nature of the agents and what seems to motivate their murderous chase scenes? So the agents are, uh, they, they, they work for the matrix. They are programs. So the matrix itself is a simulation to keep all of the, you know, to keep all of the humans who are being, you know, sort of sustained for the sake of their, of their biological energies. Right. Um, and in order to keep them placid and alive, um, they are inserted in the simulation and the agents are themselves, um, a, a kind of program that monitors the, uh, monitors the simulation. And when humans are, when humans seem to be kind of approaching the edge, you know, the, the edge of, of being aware that it is a simulation, they, they police that, they police that border essentially. They, they're, you know, it's the, the, the reference to, uh, oh, uh, yeah, the, the reference to the, de the, the, the demon earlier that is, that is playing with your sensations, uh, that they, they are there to make sure that you don't become aware of that. Um, it's the, the Wizard of Oz, you know, sort of making sure that you don't notice the curtain. <laughs> um, but they are, they, they are not human. And the way that they, they interact with humans is translated in the, in, in the simulation of the Matrix as that, that they are, they're basically the FBI. Um... And so they, they interact with humans, they speak to them, they have to, they attempt to pass themselves off as humans. Um, it's, it's also, they're, they're playing, they're also playing off of the trope of, uh, the classic, the, the, the trope of the men in black in, uh, especially UFO conspiracy lore. Um, the idea is that, you know, UFOs, extraterrestrials are out there and they really are landing and the government knows about it. But anytime some citizen gets too close to the truth, they send out the men in black, you know, guys in black suits, um, who are oddly inhuman to suppress that secret, right? So the, the agents are, they're kind of the FBI. They're also kind of the men in black, um, you know, back before it was Will Smith and they were heroic. Um, so it's citing the conspiracy lore. And, you know, what uh, the, 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 the chase scenes, they, they have this ability to basically take over any, any kind of hu human that's... Uh, you know, human awareness, there's some human figure, they can see through all of our eyes in some way. Um, yeah, they're body snatchers. Yeah, they're body snatchers. And, you know, so they've got these multiple scenes, which I remember finding incredibly effective and creepy, where, you know, one second it's like, sweet grandma, and the next second it's an agent pointing a gun at you. Yeah, that's a, that's um, a cool idea, at least. Yeah, I... I I, I thought I thought that was a I thought that was a pretty effective, um, and so uh, it get it's it's those kinds of things that are reminding you that um, they aren't limited in the way that the humans who accept the reality of the simulation are. Um, 
they're able to move much faster. They're able to transcend space by, you know, by body hopping. Um, you know, they are aware of things that are not, you know, quote, air quotes, physically present to them because they're part, they are part of the matrix, right? Um, and they are there to, you know, keep humans from becoming aware that they are in this cage. Um, but you've got that scene towards, um, I don't know, I, I guess about the, the, the three quarter, the quarters part where they have Morpheus, um, the agents have captured Morpheus. They're trying to, to break him and to steal the Zion mainframe access codes from his brain. And Lawrence Fishburne does a whole lot of eye rolling, um, which I remember <laughs> finding it just incredibly creepy. Like the whites of his eyes. I was just like, stop doing that. Uh, found it very unsettling as a, as a young, as a younger person and, and still <laughs> find it pretty unsettling. Um, but uh, Hugo Weaving uh, as Agent Smith is uh, he's he's the agent who has been in the cage with the humans so long that he seems uh, he, he, he seems to be almost verging on human himself in bad ways. Um, the other agents don't don't seem to have a kind of active animus. They don't seem to have any kind of particular emotions or passions. They're, you know, they're simply agents. They, they simply do, right? But Agent Smith also seems to have not just action, but also passion. He is he evil feels... Wally. Say, say more. Well, Wally's a robot who accidentally develops emotion, just like Agent Smith, except Agent Smith develops evil, murderous emotions. Okay, all right. You said uh, you see that's interesting. I you said I, Wally I and I Wally. thought leave it to Beaver. Oh, okay. I I and this is one of the few good things I'll say about the first sequel, not the second sequel. The second sequel I just won't speak of, but the first sequel, I will say that they take Agent Smith in an interesting sort of Milton Satan direction where, you know, he has decided that he's no longer going to be a part of the Matrix. He's going to, you know, usurp it ignoring the fact that his existence is dependent upon the matrix. Yeah. He, he, he becomes a very interesting counterpart to, um, uh, Cypher, right? Cypher is going to betray humanity in order to go back into the matrix and lose himself in that pseudo reality. Um, agent Smith finds himself gradually separating from, uh, the reality of the matrix. Uh, it's, it's kind of, and it's not all that gradual. It's when Neo blows him up. Right, right. <laughs> Neo infects him further. I, I would say infects him further. Cause I think you can already see the cracks in the character in the first movie. Okay. Yeah, no, 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 no. I grant that point. That's a good point. Yeah. Anything else? I like. I, I I think the agents are. I, I think the agents are an are an interesting and effective part of it. And and part of it is Hugo Weaving's performance. Yeah, I was gonna say. Just his we his weird voice. It's like somebody who's so trying weird. to be human but has never actually met a human. Right, and yeah. and again, through my three years of seminary, how many times did someone address somebody else, Mister Anderson? Yeah, I did that about ten <laughs> times while we were watching the movie yesterday. <laughs> 
By the way, Danny Anderson loves that. Just uh, say that to him sometime. He loves it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, a couple things, uh, David. I mean, just to, to springboard off some of the things you were focusing on. First of all is the utter sense of paranoia that the agents cause. Yeah. Uh, you know, in the uh, simulation that Morpheus takes Neo through, uh, he, he says something to the effect of, if they are not one of us, at any moment they could become an agent. And it's like, oh my gosh, you know, I thought the Cold War yeah. was over. This, <laughs> this, this is not cool, man. Uh, and then the other thing, the implication that you find out later in the movie that when a human body becomes an agent, you know, that consciousness stops existing in some sense is just as creepy as heck, right? So whenever you see an agent, it's because someone's matrix existence has prematurely been cut off you know, basically as a, a means, not an end by this program, right? So, I mean, you know, I, I, I agree with Michael that a lot of the more overt philosophical religious imagery in this film are largely surface, but I think that the agents, uh, as elements of the story and as characters, have a lot more going on than they might seem at first when you just treat them as, you know, super fast kung fu cyborgs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, someone dies every time they snatch a body. That's so. So, Michael, creepy. have we convinced you? Are the agents cool enough that we can redeem some small corner of this film? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I agree with you guys. The the Hugo Weaving performance as Agent Smith is probably the only really good performance in the movie, and quite effective in how uncanny it is. All right. Well, I'll take that as a concession. Well, Michael, uh, you and Josh often talk of Disney films over at Before They Were Live in terms of how they shape our imaginations. So feel free to take this question in directions of metaphysics, human relationships, the allure of sustained, mind-numbing gunplay, uh, or whatever else, but what does The Matrix invite us to imagine? I want to talk about the cheapness of human life in this movie, which I, I think is the the element that is probably actually strongest, and it, it, it flows from what you said about any any person can be a uh, can be a manifestation of the the matrix. The agent can become any of them, and but because of that, there's a sense, especially in that that final or penultimate action scene, that the lives of these people don't actually matter because none of this is real. So Neo and Trinity go into uh, the building where they're holding Morpheus, and they just gun down all these cops who, of course, are more or less innocent civilians, right? I mean, and as far as they know, they're living their actual... Well, they are military, so technically not civilians, but I know what right. you mean. So, so it's, they're not part of the Matrix, exactly. They're not part of the Matrix any more than anybody else plugged into it is, and yet they're going to die, and they're going to die in real life because it's established that when you die in the Matrix, you die in real life, and there's really no thought given to them, and and... The movie encourages us to root for their violent deaths. And I mean, I think I found it distasteful in 1999, uh, maybe because of the connection with Columbine. But it really struck me this time how little this movie cares for anybody outside of Nebuchadnezzar. Um, th these people whom they're supposedly going into the Matrix to, to save, and yet they're perfectly happy to gun down any of them they need to. Uh Besides that, that firefight is incredibly boring. Uh, it's as boring as a firefight in a bank lobby could ever hope to be. 
Uh, it lasts forever. Nothing new happens in any of the shots. It's really terrible, and yet it it serves to annoy you to this hyper-violence. I also had remembered it being much bloodier than it is, and I think that's probably a a testimonial to how how much times have changed since 1999 that, that that movie would have been considered as violent as it was because now in retrospect the actual violence seems fairly tame that's interesting <laughs> i hadn't thought about that angle am i just being am i yeah, just being I thought, a prude no 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 i mean i, I the uh the mind-numbing gunplay that i had in mind is when uh neo is at the uh door gun of the helicopter and it is literally raining shell casings down on you, the camera's eye. Yeah. Uh, I, I feel like even in 1999, I was saying, okay, I think we've had enough. Well, that, that scene lasts so long, right? And there's nothing new. It just keeps going. Also, how did he not yeah. shoot Morpheus? As uh, all of us said in yes. 1999, yes. <laughs> like, how does, like, how does he aiming this? Um, Th- this movie I, has a I, really I, conflicted attitude as to whether bodies matter because i mean part of the part of the game here is that in the matrix nobody has a body and yet they actually do have bodies and so you can do whatever you want with your body but also you know it has real repercussions on your actual body and you can sleep with digital prostitutes if you want i don't know and and part of it is the movie doesn't have a coherent philosophy it's just a series of images so asking asking it to take a stand on on gnosticism is asking too much from it yeah, I was going to say, I mean, I, I've I've been on record, you know, I think on this podcast saying that Gnosticism gets overused as a term of abuse, but this is one film that's definitely Gnostic in its philosophy. Yeah. But you would think it wouldn't be, right? Because the whole point is that we're more than our minds, except it's not the point. I, I don't know. Well, because if anybody... And I'm I I'm sure when the film came out there were there were plenty of you know, there were plenty of young folk for whom this became a venue of adolescent fantasy. Nobody imagines themselves eating goop in the Nebuchadnezzar. They imagine themselves making the walls go whoop 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 when they flex, you know, <laughs> because they have superpowers inside the matrix. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. right. It's like the twist is the it's it's all just a trap, and you're really this you know body in a shell. But the thing is, until the sequels figure out you know I think problematic and unconvincing ways to make Neo special outside the Matrix, um, you know until those sequels, he's only he's only super inside. So does he really want everybody to leave? Because he's not cool then. He's just like a guy. <laughs> yeah, and that that's another moment in the first sequel that actually gets potentially interesting when he all of a sudden has the power to stop the, uh, oh, what are those like squid robots called? I can't remember. S- Sentinels. S- Sentinels. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Squid, like he's able dudes. to stop those in Zion World and you have that thought that you know lasted you know i can't remember how many months 11 months till the second sequel came out is zion itself just another level of the matrix right but then the third sequel comes along and i will not speak of it (laughs) but if we're just going to look at the matrix then 
you're he's only special inside the matrix it's only inside the matrix that any of them are cool if you're outside the matrix they they have this really kind of rough hard boring dangerous life you know it's it's either dangerous and frightening or it's dull and grueling <laughs> you know they they aren't raving down in zion um yeah so it's i i, I don't know yeah that's interesting that's interesting well, David, we would be uh, irresponsible to wrap up without talking about the ways that this film has echoed in pop culture, because oh, has it echoed. So I want to take this one around the horn. David, you start off. Tell us where in our own moment we still run into bullet time, red pills and blue pills, glitches in the Matrix, I know Kung Fu, or anything else you find <laughs> interesting here. Or if you can't think of anything, just shout, no way, no way. <laughs> you should do the whole episode of that voice, Nathan. Awesome. I, that, the thought occurred to me. <gasps> I know Kung Fu. Um, that might be the dumbest line in a movie full of dumb lines. <laughs> I remember finding that incredibly hilarious when it when it came out. That that just that that look on his face, like there's this moment when he stops being, you know, kind of grim dark neo and you know it's you know we're back to bill and ted you know yeah it really is it really is <laughs> um i i don't know necessarily about necessarily about our own moment because bullet time is not necessarily as much the um the the the, the language the hot language anymore um, right. I mean, 15 years ago, it was yeah. a joke in Shrek. <laughs> yeah. But I remember the moment at which, uh, at which I said, okay, bullet time is now just parody was in, I think it was, uh, alien versus predator. And this has been, I, I can't even remember when alien versus predator came out when one of the alien, like face hugger guys, hatches from his little pod and he leaps towards the face of one of the, you know, some human character and he freezes in the air and they do the complete 360 of the face hugger. Nice. <laughs> and I remember watching that and just, just laughing so much because it's like the face hugger gets his bullet time moment. I actually, David, now that you mentioned that, I remember a couple years in uh, EA Sports Madden football games, whenever a uh, defensive player would intercept a pass, it would do it in bullet time. Nice. Uh, there were some, uh, I wish I could remember the name. One, one of the Star Wars Jedi Knight games had a mode which you could toggle on and off that whenever you, um, uh, whenever you, killed an enemy with a lightsaber it would it would kind of freeze 360 that's that that moment so that you're like oh so i'm so awesome look at me with my lightsaber um yeah that 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 parody um it became such is... a joke that it's it's important to remember how cool that effect was in 1999 it was very cool until they just beat it into the ground 
but but yeah, I mean, who is they? It's not that's not the Wachowskis' fault. I mean, they they no. It's it's one of the few really cool things this movie did, and yeah, you're right. Pop culture just hammered it because it, it because it was a cheap way to imitate what was effective. Um, and and not cheap as in like inexpensive. Like like I'm sure that's you know a, a complex technical thing to film and i remember i think watching special features about how they did it and it involved all these cameras and and stuff but you know it was something tangible that they could say look we're action movies in the new style because we do the freeze frame 360 thing um it is kind of funny though because this isn't something that's after the matrix like something before the matrix that i'd never even knew about but it's on Prime now. Um, do, y'all go, do you guys know um, Thunderbirds? That uh, oh, yeah, I remember Thunderbirds. No. Okay, well the Gary Gary Anderson, um, all of those kind of marionation action shows with cool vehicles and stuff. Um, there was one of those called Joe Ninety, in which a little boy is the most special agent or the specialist agent or something like that. Um, this little boy in, in each episode, they program into his brain, the expertise of another human so that he can perform a different kind of top secret mission, like be an astronaut or fly a fighter plane or something like that. And this was like (laughs) sixties. So, you know, I, I, I found that recently. It's on Prime. Uh, I found that recently and was like, wait a minute. <laughs> this is just the Matrix. <laughs> well, and again, that's another cyberpunk punk trope. I, di- I didn't know that it existed before William Gibson, but I mean, there's definitely, a, like I said, a, a common plot element in which you can get uh, specialized skills uploaded to your cranium in yeah. those novels. Yeah, pretty neat. Another one, uh, and this is this is one I remember actually at the time, um, bef- in night, and I looked this up. I remember when the Matrix came out, watching it, thinking, "What a ripoff!" Because I'd read a novel called "The Caverns of Socrates" by Dennis McKiernan. It was published in 1996, in which um, some this this group of of young folk who play um, a computer role playing game competitively, like talk about prescience. Um, it's like a three D um, virtual reality game that they that they play somehow competitively, and they get immersed in this um, kind of simulated world. And then the AI that's running the simulated world goes bad because it wants to win the game. And If, if you took all the trench coats and guns away and, and gave them, like, swords and armor, it would be exactly the same story. And I remember watching that, watching The Matrix, thinking, this is just Dennis McKiernan's Caverns of Socrates. Anyway. So, there there's a lot of DNA before The Matrix, and a lot of it coming out of it, too. I think we got to talk Michael, about any red pilling. 
Yep, someone's got the to. The men's rights activist term for when women realize that there is no patriarchy and that really it's not a man's, 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 man's world, but a woman's, 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 woman's world. And I, I, I find it really interesting that this thoughtful, supposedly, movie about tech culture has ended up furnishing the central metaphor for this group of misogynists, but then... You know, tech culture is largely wildly misogynist, so it makes sense. This is a this is a movie that acts like it's for philosophers, but it's really for bros. Uh, so it makes sense that the bros of the internet would latch on to that uh, metaphor. And please keep your emails to yourself, men's rights activists. I have little respect for you. Yeah, that's really the big. Uh echo in the last you know decade or so is the uh and i I would say it extends beyond you know men's rights activists to a broader spectrum of you know online right-wing activity but yeah i mean the 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 hashtag red pill is definitely something that uh remains with us 20 years later uh you know i i assume in ways that you know the filmmakers didn't anticipate but i i think michael it goes back to what you were saying earlier because this movie doesn't have a coherent philosophy of its own. You can map a whole lot of stuff onto it. But I mean, it's yeah. interesting that it would be right wingers in particular, because they also latch onto the Wachowski's next movie, which is uh, V for Vendetta, which I have not seen. I'm glad to say. Have either of you seen yeah, it? Yeah, me neither. No, I haven't. Yeah, but a lot of anarchists and more left wing types have latched onto that as well. Like, yeah, I know, was going to say, I, what, I saw a lot of Guy Fox maxes, uh, masks, pardon me at, uh, uh, in photographs of Occupy Wall Street. Events. That's true. Okay. You know, that, that paranoid style, the paranoid style of the matrix and V for Vendetta is, is one that's not necessarily partisan. I, I think the red pill phrase itself has, has gotten attached to a particular, set of partisan notions but but that overall style of of wake up sheeple it's all it's the lie we live in um is that that's that's not that there's no particular partisan group that's got the that's got the 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 exclusive rights to that no that's true right right. and and that and that's just tailor-made for social media culture too which is interesting because the, the people who most use this are the people who are very online, capital V, capital O. You know, they're the ones who are the most plugged into the Matrix and the most separated from physical reality. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, I see your point now. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, Michael, I, w- I want to finish up with this idea of waking up. The first time we see Neo, an incoming message tells him to wake up. As the credits roll on The Matrix, the audience hears Rage Against the Machine screaming at us to wake up. And famously, Neo wakes up seven times in the course of the film. So, as you see things, in what ways does this movie stand in a tradition of consciousness-raising films? I'm, I'm having trouble not laughing as I say that. And in what ways does the narrative of awakening itself work as a, an opium for the masses of youth ministers? I'm going to punt on the uh the historical question and let you deal with that and i'll just i'll just say that this movie has a great deal in common with uh, david fincher's fight club 
which came out either the year after it or two years after it. They share not same year, same, same year. year, really. Well, they share they yeah. share not only a nauseous color palette, but also this notion that um, that everything you know is wrong and that you're kind of uh, you're kind of living in a fantasy world. Although I'd say Fight Fight Club actually does a better job of it than The Matrix because there's a twist. There's a twist at the end that makes it clear that the the joke is on the people who think they were awake the whole time. Do you know what I mean? Yep. So yep. I I uh, absolutely I think there's a kind of self criticism in Fight Club that's just not a, not present in the Matrix. Although, uh, as Victoria told me last night, both of those movies on her, are on her do not date list. <laughs> nice, nice. Uh, as far as it being an opium for the masses of youth ministers. I, again, I think Fight Club provides a good example here because when people start screaming about wake up sheeple, when people start to assume that they're the only ones who see reality for what it really is, the kind of, um, well, the paranoid style that David was talking about earlier, I, you know, the chances are they're wrong. <laughs> uh, as, as it turns out, most of human life is not a vast conspiracy that needs to be uh, shattered to pieces by heroic 20-something men. So when we use these things as examples or um, or as guides for life, I think we probably risk becoming the sorts of people uh, whom we're criticizing, if that makes sense. There's a kind of blindness that comes from thinking yourself to be the only person who's awake. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Or a woke. David, what would you add? Or a woke. Um the one of the reasons why this particular trope is so irritating to me is that it is a shorthand of doing it's it's a short it's it's a shortcut way of avoiding actually dealing with what other people find what the people that you're opposed to or disagree with find to be persuasive and compelling um in those ideas which they actually adhere to give me an example um well if if you can if you can simply say Every, every everything that you believe everything that you believe is a lie um your side is simply paid for by you know this this series of incredibly super rich people who have a secret agenda there's one there's one manifestation of the paranoid style you know name your own billionaire and name your own agenda all right um but once you've done that, you, you you can you can say, and that's why I don't have to answer any of your arguments for your position, because behind your position is this dark power, you know, using using its wealth to grind down the masses. All right. And so I don't have to I don't have to answer what you say because you are simply a flunky. You're you're simply one of those masses who has been co-opted to become an agent. All right, you're simply the face of the dark power that's running the matrix. Um, so uh, that the the paranoid style becomes 
can become a way of, of the 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 trope of of those who are those have those who've wo- woken up and those who are still sleeping the trope of those who are aware and those who are not um those who see the real uh the real conspiracy and those who are still trapped inside of it um ends up becoming on the part of the part of the 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 awa- the, the gnostics the ones who know um now no longer need to actually interact with uh, the arguments of those who are not in the know, um, you know, because because they've 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 seen through it, right? Um, in the same way that you know, if I think that monopoly is nonsense and i'm just not going to play any play it anyway i'm not going to get into some large large argument about the proper way of playing monopoly because it's just all nonsense that's not a great example but i don't know is that is is that a does does that does that make sense oh absolutely absolutely and michael the the reason i asked about other films is because i think of you know and i this is a weird array of, 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 of artifacts. But, uh, when I think of films like John Q or Aaron Brockovich, I mean, there's definitely a sense that the lone protagonist is exposing a truth about a larger systemic conspiracy of sorts. Um, and I, I think I just picked those two cause it's from roughly the same era as the matrix. Uh, but this one, I, I think you're right that, you know, it encourages a kind of Gnosticism that those don't right. Uh, this is we are the we are the red pill people, uh, and like you said, I mean, and you know, it, it's it's right there in the film, right? Anyone who is not one of us is one of them. Uh, so I mean, there's no sense that uh, people might be convinced of it, uh, and really, you know, the only sign that you are convinced is if you remove yourself entirely from it. Uh, so there's very little continuity between us and them, uh, in this kind of imagination. So, uh, it, it, it is funny that, I mean, you know, the people in my life, at least, uh, who picked up most on the matrix and kind of made it their, uh, go-to sermon illustration were youth ministers, uh, who, you know, as the, the Christian feminist podcast has explored, uh, in such detail, uh, are, historically some of the people most obsessed with separating from the evil outside world right uh so i think i I don't think that's a coincidence i'll put it that way that does that make some sense yeah absolutely well at any rate listeners uh if you are a great fan of the uh fine acting in the matrix and you want to uh tell us how things actually are uh feel free to write in we'd be glad to hear from you uh, David, what are we talking about next week? Next week, we are going to uh, look at a couple of readings from some some pretty widely divergent writers uh, about being alone as a kind of spiritual discipline. So, listeners, we're going from being in the crowd to being in the matrix to being by yourself. That's the uh, progression here uh, in the month of May, of April for the Christian Humanist Podcast. Uh, in the meantime, as you make that progression, you can find us at uh, christianhumanist.org. You can also find our Facebook page and talk to us there. 
You can email us at thechristianhumanist at gmail.com. And, of course, you can find our show on iTunes and other podcast distributors. We always appreciate it when you give us ratings there because the more times we appear in the uh, search algorithms of The Matrix, the less likely the agents are to keep the enlightened away from our content. Uh, The Christian Humanist Podcast is a part of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Filippic. Our audio editor is Ellen Peterson. And I am Nathan Gilmore on behalf of David Grubbs and Michael Farmer saying, let your sins be strong, let your faith be stronger.